Welcome, everybody, to Tokens of Wisdom. I'm Dave Rothschild, a partner at Cole Freeman & Mallon, a boutique law firm with one of the leading private fund practices on the West Coast. My job is to help aspiring fund managers form, launch, and operate their funds. Strap in for episode two here and learn how private fund managers navigate the Investment Advisors Act and related state laws. One note before we dive in, please be sure to listen to the disclaimer at the end of this show. Preview, nothing here constitutes legal investment or tax advice. So like I said at the top, today we're going to dig into the Investment Advisors Act and related state laws, and we're going to figure out how these regulatory regimes apply to private fund managers. So the Advisors Act governs investment advisors, which has a very specific regulatory definition. What is an investment advisor? It's a person or entity in the business of providing advice about investing in securities in exchange for compensation. Now that's a mouthful, but basically if you're getting paid to advise someone else about investing in securities, then you're an investment advisor. Any sort of compensation paid to the advisor in exchange for investment advice makes the advisor an investment advisor under U.S. law. So you've determined that your new business makes you an investment advisor. Now what do you do? Well, like I mentioned in episode one, every investment advisor has to either register as an investment advisor or claim a valid exemption from registration. Before you can even start analyzing what exemptions might be available to your business, you have to figure out who regulates your business. In the United States, the investment advisor regulatory regime is bifurcated between the states and the SEC. The primary determinant of who has jurisdiction over your business is how much money you're managing. So I'm going to take you through various tiers of investment advisors based on how much money they're managing and give you a very high-level look at what regulator has jurisdiction over these hypothetical businesses. There are always edge cases and exceptions to these general rules. So if you want to understand how everything applies to your business specifically, you'll have to talk to a lawyer or a compliance consultant. But in broad strokes, if you're managing between zero and $25 million, you are subject to the jurisdiction of the state or states in which you're operating. If you're managing between 25 and $100 million, you're generally subject to state jurisdiction unless the states in which you're operating do not regulate mid-size investment advisors, in which case the SEC asserts jurisdiction at $25 million in AUM. If you have $100 million or more under management, then the SEC regulates your business. Okay, so you've tallied up how much money you're managing, you've figured out what state or states you're operating in, you know what regulator regulates your business, so now your job is to figure out what those regulations say. Is there an exemption you can claim from registration? Or do you have to register as an investment advisor with that regulatory body? There are two common sort of flavors of investment advisor exemptions that might be available in different states and with the SEC. The first is sort of referred to as a de minimis exemption. States that have a de minimis exemption have some formulation of a law that says, as long as you have fewer than X clients over a specified period of time and you don't hold yourself out to the public as an investment advisor, then you are exempt from registration. These de minimis investment advisor exemptions are self-executing, meaning there is no filing required in order to claim it. All you have to do is figure out if you meet the requirements, and if so, you are exempt and you don't have to file anything. If you're a mid-sized advisor operating in one of these states, by reference to the tiers I was describing earlier, meaning if you're managing between $25 and $100 million, then the SEC asserts jurisdiction over your business and you have to look at their rules. What states have some version of a de minimis exemption? Some of the big ones are New York, New Jersey, 
in Illinois. The second common investment advisory exemption that might apply is colloquially referred to as a private fund exemption. You qualify for this exemption if your only clients are private funds. And since this is a show all about private funds, we're assuming that the managers listening here are private fund managers. So as long as you're not managing separate accounts on the side, if you're operating in a state that has a private fund exemption or you're subject to SEC jurisdiction, because hint, hint, the SEC has a private fund exemption, then you can claim this exemption. In some states, they add additional requirements to the extent you're managing any 3C1 funds. If you think back to our overview of the Investment Company Act exemptions from episode one, 3C1 funds do not have any additional accreditation requirement on investors. So these states say that because you're managing a 3C1 fund and maybe you're admitting accredited investors into your fund, we're going to put some additional compliance hoops in front of you that you have to jump through. If you're managing 3C7 funds, those investors are all qualified purchasers. They're institutional investors. They can protect themselves. So a few big states that have private fund exemptions, California, Massachusetts, Texas, and like I mentioned before, the SEC has its own version. California, Massachusetts, and Texas all impose specific additional requirements on managers to 3C1 funds. And of course, they're a little bit different in each state. In California, for example, every beneficial owner of a 3C1 fund that's managed by an advisor claiming California's private fund exemption must be an accredited investor. That means you lose those 35 slots that were otherwise available to non-accredited investors. In California, if you manage a 3C1 fund, you cannot charge performance-based compensation, no carried interest, no performance allocation to an investor unless they meet the definition of a qualified client. And finally, if you're managing a 3C1 fund, there is a regulatory requirement to obtain an annual audit each year and distribute the audited financial statements to your investors. Note this is a regulatory requirement. And so while your investors might agree to waive a contractual requirement, they cannot agree to waive a regulatory requirement. Both Massachusetts and Texas have similar regimes for 3C1 fund managers, except they're even a little more restrictive in the sense that to qualify for those states' private fund exemptions, you cannot accept to any investor in your 3C1 fund who's not a qualified client, even if you're not charging them performance-based compensation. Like I mentioned, the SEC also has a private fund exemption. It does not impose any of these additional requirements on managers of 3C1 funds. Note also that the SEC's private fund exemption has an AUM ceiling of $150 million. So once you cross that threshold of assets under management, you're going to have to start the process of registering as an investment advisor. The one exception to that AUM ceiling is if you are a manager of venture capital funds only. So your only clients are venture capital funds, which has a very specific definition. Most managers of digital asset funds are going to have a hard time meeting the venture capital fund definition for their funds. So if you're a digital asset manager, you're likely operating with an AUM ceiling of $150 million before you have to register. Note that in all states that have it and with the SEC, if you qualify for a private fund exemption, there is a filing you need to make to claim it. The filing is a truncated version of the ADV Part 1. If you're registering as an investment advisor, you have to fill out a long application called the Form ADV that has a few different parts. One part is the Part 1. It's kind of like a multiple choice test. Think back to high school when you took all those tests where you had to fill in the bubbles with the number two pencil. That's kind of what we're dealing with with the ADV Part 1. The version you have to file to claim the exemption is shorter, aka truncated, versus the version you have to file if you're registering as an investment advisor. So, and then there's a category of states where there are no exemptions whatsoever. If you're operating a private 
private fund business in one of those states, you have no choice but to register as an investment advisor with the state regulatory authority. So what are the benefits of claiming an exemption or qualifying for an exemption and avoiding registration? Well, I think there's three main benefits. One, fewer compliance obligations. If you're exempt from registration, you're typically exempt from many of the compliance obligations and requirements that are otherwise imposed upon registered investment advisors. Second benefit of an exemption, you're not generally subject to routine examination. So if you're a registered investment advisor, the regulatory body with which you're registered is going to examine your business periodically. They're going to come into your office. It's relatively disruptive. They ask for all your documents. They go through your whole business and try and find ways in which you're not complying with relevant regulations. Third benefit of the exemption is it's cheaper and faster to get up and running with your business. If you apply for investment advisor registration, there's a whole process. You have to fill out this long application. There's a back and forth with state or SEC regulators. It can cost a lot of money and it can take a very long time. I've seen state level investment advisor registrations stretch on for months and months versus if you're claiming an exemption, even the ones that require filings like the private fund exemption, as soon as you make the filing, your exemption is on file. There's no back and forth with a regulator. You don't have to answer questions. You just have to submit the file. It's much faster and cheaper to get up and running. What are the drawbacks of the exemption? I mean, if you qualify for them, there are very few. I mean, the one drawback that I can envision is that there are some institutional investors who may expect or even require that the advisors to the funds they invest in are registered. So if you're talking to those kinds of investors and they're not going to give you their money unless you're a registered investment advisor, then you're kind of backed into a corner and you don't have much choice. Thanks for listening to Tokens of Wisdom with Dave Rothschild. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends about us. Well, now that all that boring regulatory analysis is out of the way, it's time for the part you've all been waiting for. But legal disclaimer, in this show, I describe laws and regulations from a 10,000-foot view. And while this should be obvious to most, I need to say it nonetheless. This show is for informational purposes only. And nothing said here constitutes legal investment or tax advice. If you're thinking about starting a fund or you're curious about what's involved, this show is a good resource as you explore your options. But if you're going to pull the trigger and launch a fund, please engage an attorney to assist you.